Weird times, creepy crimes, and unexplained phenomenon. If it's weird and it's in Florida, it's on the SoFlo Weird Show. Here's your host and head weirdo, Mia Lorenzo. Welcome, weirdos. Thank you for joining me. When we say prehistoric, I imagine something like the movie Ice Age with Sid the Sloth, Manny the Mammoth, and Diego the Sabertooth Tiger roaming free. When we think prehistoric Florida, our minds really only go back 14,000 years ago when Native Americans inhabited the area. But today, we're going to go back millions of years to learn what animals roam the Sunshine State as we uncover some fascinating archaeological discoveries on display at the Museum of Arts and Sciences in Daytona Beach, Florida. Joining me is co-host and weird contributor Michelle McArdle and Zach Zacharias, Senior Curator of Education and History at the museum. Zach, one thing I notice when a lot of people come into the museum is they think that we have a dinosaur skeleton and the Jeffersonian sloth or giant ground sloth is a mammal. The word around the block is that you will only find mammals in Florida and can you explain why you generally don't see dinosaur bones in Florida? That is correct. You cannot find dinosaur bones in Florida. During the time of the Mesozoic era, which means middle life, uh, which was those common time periods you may have heard of, which is called Triassic, Jurassic, and Cretaceous times, the time of the dinosaurs, age of reptiles, Florida was underwater. It had broken off as a supercontinent called Pangaea, and it just really hadn't been formed yet. Technically, you might be able to find some dinosaur fossils, but they'd be five to seven miles below the surface, which is actually impossible. And that's when it would have been connected as a supercontinent called Pangaea. But uh, once the dinosaurs had gone extinct about 35 million years ago, Florida began to slowly arise out of the ocean, and then the age of mammals had taken over. And then we you get animals eventually, like the giant ground sloth, which that species is actually called Aromatherium uh, laurelardi, which is a little bit different than the Jeffersonian, which is smaller. So there's lots of species of giant ground sloths. So which which one do we have here? We have the, the big granddaddy of them all, which is the Aromatheriums, the Megatheriums, uh, which is called Aromatherium laurelardi. And uh, so it, it weighed, you know, seven, 8,000 pounds, maybe even 10,000 pounds. Holy cow. And how, and how tall is it? It stands about 13 feet when it raises up on its hind legs and balances itself on a tail to browse in the trees because it was a browser, so it was a herbivore. Man, that's cool. Yes, it is very cool. It, it, it's huge. And I can see where people mistake it to be a dinosaur. Well, that's an issue because a lot of times, anytime anybody sees a large skeleton, of they course. automatically assume there's a dinosaur. Of course. And think about this. The largest animal that ever lived is a mammal, which is the blue whale, yeah. not, a, not a dinosaur. Can you tell us how uh, the story about how it was found? The story of the finding of the giant ground sloth is really interesting and fascinating and most likely a little bit different than what people might believe how it happened. It actually started its origins in Blue Springs, which is now Blue Springs State Park in Orange City. Roger Allison and Don Sorbosic were amateur paleontologists, and Don Sorbosic initially was learning the skills of fossiling and skin diving with a friend of his who, who was another paleontologist or amateur named Ben Waller. And they went diving or skin diving in Blue Springs which before it was a state park. They pulled up a bunch of fossils. Ben Waller, who was really great, identified them as giant ground sloth fossils and said they were very rare and that there's no complete skeleton. 
Don Sobosik made it his life goal to maybe find a complete skeleton in Florida. It didn't take long because about a year later, he was watching a TV show. And if you remember back in the day when we had TV, you had like three or four channels. You maybe had that local channel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that one local channel. She doesn't remember. Right. I do. This right. before cable and all this. Yeah. Uh, so he was watching the show and they had um, one of the dragline operators. The dragline's the guy that works the big crane with the bucket on it. Mm -hmm. And he said they've been finding dinosaur fossils. Well, he knew there are no dinosaurs in Florida. And so he went out and started talking to the people at this, what's called a borrow pit on Reed Canal. And a borrow pit is where they take the dirt, they borrow it and take it away, usually to build roads or fill, whatever they're going to use it for. And so he had made contacts out there. And um, so literally, this is in 1964, 65. Ten years later, uh, this pond is now sold to the county. It gets drained. And then Don Sorbasa goes out there starts to excavate, starting finding thousands of fossil oh bones, God. thousands. Uh, and uh, him and Roger Allison, which was a partner of his, and they, Roger Allison liked the elephant stuff like mammoth and mastodon. Mm -hmm. And so they started finding lots of giant ground sloth material. And it became a really big news event and a big event here in really the small community of Daytona, South Daytona at the time. There wasn't a park then, Reconal, but it is today. Would they have lived in a colony? Is that is that why they... Uh, found so many in one concentrated area? This is absolutely a fascinating theory. It's the largest die-off of giant ground sloths. They found evidence of 13 individuals that had died there, but they don't know the reason. So it's the mm -hmm. largest die-off ever that's not associated with a tar pit where they fell in a tar pit or mm -hmm. they fell into some type of a sinkhole. Uh, they don't know if it was a natural die-off place or if there was some type of catastrophic event. They're not really sure. They pulled out enough skeleton material for two complete skeletons. One that we have, another one, was is in the Sarbosic family that was sold off later, not too long ago. So can you tell me how the museum came into the acquisition of the fossils? The museum was very small back then. We're talking, you know, maybe 3,000 square feet, Museum of Arts and Sciences. And um, the, the science curator at that time, uh, was also friends with uh, Sarbosik and Alex and, and invited him out. Uh, the Royal Ontario Museum in uh, Canada was involved. Uh, University of Florida was involved, Florida Museum of Natural History. And uh, they worked out a deal that the first skeleton would go to the museum. The second skeleton would go to Don Sarbosik personally. A lot of the elephant material would go to uh, Roger Alexson. And then the University of Florida and the Royal Ontario Museum would get a lot of the other pieces. The reason the Royal Ontario Museum was involved is that the world's greatest expert on giant ground sloths was the curator up there. He's the vertebrate curator. And uh, so he was involved. They actually wanted to purchase the site, you know, the museum, but that didn't happen. So it's amazing that this little museum got this world-class specimen, which ended up being the most complete skeleton in the world of that species of giant ground sloth, as I said, Aromatherium laurelardi. These scientific names are, are complicated. Yeah, and you ha he has to learn how to say them. Think giant about that. Giant ground sloth, <laughs> yeah, giant ground sloth. So um, going back to that, what do you think caused the demise of these giant mammals? I mean, I, and like you said, it wasn't a tar pit or anything, but do you have any theories? So when I had talked to Dr. Edmonds, 
and this was very early in my museum career and learning about paleontology uh, and the wonders of it, which is absolutely fantastic. And it's an incredible science and involves 26 other sciences. I had asked him that, and I said, well, who better to ask than the world's expert? And he had stated that he believes that maybe this was a natural die-off site that our ancient river had flowed down basically where Nova Road is today, mm -hmm. and it had turned right at this location where they were ex excavating this material, and the banks of the river were really low, and the animals could go down there and drink water, and they, were, they just died right there. Because when animals are gonna die, they're usually dehydrated, so they would go down to the riverbank, and it was very low, because these are big, lumbering, clumsy animals. Yeah, it's a lot of water they got to drink. Yeah, and so they would just <laughs> die there, and they get entombed in yeah. the muck. Because they didn't find a lot of fossils on the other side of this giant borrow pit, maybe the banks were really high there, and the animals can't get down a high embankment. Because right. they found a lot of other animals as well. So mm -hmm. this may have been a natural watering hole. And when you get that, a lot of times animals, you know, when they're on their last leg, they're going to fall in yeah. and they get entombed. Uh, or maybe they could have been tumbled down river, dying somewhere else up river, this little creek, and then they all yeah. got caught down there. Nobody really knows. Mm -hmm. Nobody really knows. But it does date back 130,000 years. Oh my God. So. You don't think, when you think Florida, you just, you just don't think that, you know what I mean? That far back. Yeah, it was 130,000 years ago and the ocean levels were way out, uh, you know, probably 50 miles further out. Think of this area in east, northeast Florida, like the Serengeti is today in Africa, where they're just literally animals bumping in, into each other in great large numbers. That's what it was like in the last ice age. Mammoths, mastodons, uh, saber-toothed tiger, uh, giant ground sloths, uh, giant armadillos. They were just all over the place. They were just, just so many of them. It's really exciting. Anytime you dig, on this Nova Road area, when they do excavate, you know, when they doing construction, it's very common for them to find material. That's fascinating. Yeah, I, I remember that one of the past magazines you wrote that there were several mass extinction events that had happened. Uh, how many were there? There were about five mass extinction events, and paleontologists have certain criteria for that to happen. This is not a mass extinction event, and one of the things is usually there's a corresponding extinction in the oceans. There was no corresponding extinction in the ocean here. And it usually has to be a minimum of, of a third of all animals on Earth. And it has to happen very quick. That did not happen. So there's a murder suspect out there that has not been solved for why these animals went extinct. Because these animals lived through at least a dozen previous ice ages, no problem. And when they got to the last one, the Wisconian Ice Age, you know, 10 to 13,000 years ago, something was different and something happened and you get these animals that went extinct, and then you get a domino effect, and then there's an equilibrium that will reestablish itself at some point. Was the giant ground sloth, was that a herbivore? The giant ground sloth was a herbivore, and it was a browser, so it most likely browsed on trees. That's what it uh, was really designed to do. It has these big, blocky teeth with no enamel, so its teeth grew all the time. It only got one set of teeth. Uh, and it was designed to chew up branches and leaves and had a tongue when it rolled out of its mouth. Quite amazing. Like two feet long. You know, so they don't know if it ate like a corn on the cob or if it kind of stripped them off with this big tongue. They don't really know. But when it raised up on, all, on, on its hind legs and it balanced itself on this short, powerful, muscular tail, it, it, it stood up about 13 feet tall. 
And then it would go, if it needed to move over a long distance, it would go back down on all fours. So it would be an obligate, you know, forward. So, so if it had that tail that it was balancing on, was that like a prehensile tail? Did, could it actually grab things with the tail? No, or? it did. It wasn't like that at all. Mm-mm. Or probably used as yeah. a weapon, like some have, animals, like if it was... No, not no? so because it was short. Oh. So what it did, if it had to defend itself, it had pretty long arms because it had to reach into the tops of the trees and pull branches down. So it had big, powerful, heavy arms. It had big claws, and it would have probably just swatted at an animal. A lot of times, the carnivores will look at the carnivores will look at an animal that big and just say, no, "I'm out. No way. I'm going to tap out." And and Doctor <laughs> Edmonds has stated that maybe it smelled really bad. This animal and carnivores like fresh meat, just like you do. You don't want the three day old hot dog in the refrigerator. Right. You want the one fresh off the grill, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the one that was cooked three days ago in the refrigerator. <laughs> so that may have been what defense mechanism. It was just a theory that Doctor Edmonds had had, and because. Tree sloths today, you know, have mold and all, they're kind of stinky. So maybe that was a, another defense mechanism that they had. What, if any, creatures exist today that we may have seen during that time? And, and, and or, how or have relatives? they changed? Yeah. Um, so let's see. Here's a great example that I love. Llamas most likely actually may have evolved here in the south part of the United States. They're a North American evolutionary animal. And they may have even developed in Florida because there's a huge concentration of what is called the paleo llama or the ancient llama, which is pretty big compared to the llamas today. They find a lot of those fossils in Florida, which means they may have a you know a pretty big evolutionary part of their life here. They escaped over the Panamanian land bridge and escaped extinction and now live in South America. Uh, so llamas is a great example of that. Horses obviously evolved in North America. Their fossils super common in Florida rivers and mm-hmm. creeks uh, as well. They slipped over the Bering Land Bridge and then were brought back by Ponce de Leon. Armadillo today, a relative of the giant uh, armadillo and the glyptodont today. So you see a lot of relatives. Obviously, bears, the type of bears that lived in the Ice Age are extinct, but of course we have the black bear today. So there's a lot of examples. There's a good chance, though, that when humans first came here, when humans first came, they may have uh, at least pushed them into extinction uh, because we have solid evidence that these ancient humans called Clovis people were hunting Ice Age mammals. And they've, they've changed because you're talking about giant llamas and giant this and giant that. So they've all come smaller, right, over time? So... Some have and some haven't. So horses were the size, the Ice Age horses going way back, you know, their evolutionary history is 50 million years, 45 million years. Uh, they've gotten much bigger. So they were the size of like a cocker spaniel, and now they're huge. Whoa, really? Llamas mm-hmm. <laughs> a little smaller. Uh, the, we still have two elephants today. Obviously, the mammoths and the mastodons are gone. Uh, so, uh, you know, mastodons were you know, about the size of a regular a- elephant today. Colombian mammoths were bigger. So it just kind of, you know, a lot of the, the Ice Age mammals, their size were bigger, and a lot of the animals today are small. The bears aren't nearly as big. We had mm-hmm. biggest bears that ever lived in the world also lived in Florida. So uh, the lion, the American lion, which there's a skull on display in, in the exhibit right now, in the prehistory ex- exhibit of Florida, that was a, from a tip of tail to tip of nose, 13 feet. Oh, my God. And it was the biggest... A lion and feline ever lived, and it lived in Florida. 
and humans would have seen that animal at some point. They saw a lot of these animals. Do you know why they um, got smaller? Like what evolutionarily was like advantageous for them to like become smaller? I would probably say that the food sources and the quality of the vegetation changed, especially in the grasses. So nutrition-wise, they're just getting the wrong type of not as good nutrition, so they probably will grow smaller. It's like us. If you didn't get proper nutrition as a child, you probably might not meet your full potential of height. Uh, so if you, your nutrition wasn't um, that great, and that's probably why uh, the animals maybe have grown. So, I mean, nobody knows exactly why, but that's probably a good reason is that the food, quality of the food wasn't as good. And that might be why a lot of, of these animals went extinct because the quality of the food they were eating after the Ice Age ended um, just wasn't as good. And then you throw in humans hunting them, the birth rate couldn't keep up with the death rate. A couple of them go extinct, you get a little bit of a domino effect, and then next thing you know, you've, you know, you've had animals that's gone extinct. And why do you think some survived, some species survived? Some survived uh, because they adapted probably to the new nutritional requirements, and if they're being hunted, they may have been like, like bison and deer. Their numbers were just too great. Mm -hmm. They're just too huge for these ancient humans to, to wipe out. Elephants have a very long gestation period. They can't really reproduce till they're 18 or 20 years old. And they have to carry a baby almost two years. And, and even the, the llamas, they, they have a long gestation period too. Um, I have alpacas, which are basically mini llamas at my house. I have 11 of them. And you know, it takes 14 months for them to have a baby. That's a pretty long time. Uh, so that's probably, a, a, for whatever reason, this is like the million, billion dollar question that yeah. scientists have been trying to figure out for 100 years, why these animals uh, disappeared. And uh, there's a lot of theories out there. Well, thank you, Zach. You painted a very interesting picture of what Florida was like prehistoric, especially when you said that Serengeti with the app. I can't even imagine that, but very, very interesting. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Zach Zacharias from the Museum of Arts and Sciences in Daytona Beach and co-host Michelle McArdle talking about the giant ground sloth and other mammals that once roamed the Sunshine State. If you'd like to see the giant ground sloth and other prehistoric creatures, go to SoFloWeird.com, where we have photos and links to the museum's exhibit. Next, we feature Florida's last great mastodon hunt. Okay, you may be thinking this would have happened thousands of years ago, but one such expedition occurred only 160 years ago. This mastodon myth is documented in Charlie Carlson's book, Strange Florida Two. Believe it or not, herds of mammoth and mastodon once roamed throughout the marshes of prehistoric Florida. Their skeletal remains have been found all over the state, especially in phosphate pits and springs. In the 1950s, Buck Hawkins, a commercial fisherman, was digging worms along the St. Johns River when his potato rake unearthed a tooth from a prehistoric mammoth elephant. Unable to identify the object, it became a doorstop for 20 years until it fell into the possession of the author. Paleontologists believe Florida's ancient elephants died out about 9,000 years ago. 
However, a humorous piece of folklore claims that the last great mastodon hunt actually took place in 1860 near Silver Springs, where for years fossilized bones of prehistoric animals had been plowed up in the fields and found in the springs. A visiting newspaper journalist in the mid-1800s theorized that Silver Springs may have been a watering hole for extinct mammoth, mastodon, camels, giant sloth, and bison. Being somewhat schooled in prehistoric stuff, he was able to identify many of the bones found by local farmers. Local folks having little knowledge of paleontology thought the bones were from beasts still roaming the swamp. One backwoods fellow, Matthew Driggers, declared in 1860s that he was going to hunt down one of those big varmints and kill it. One morning, just before daybreak, Mr. Driggers was awakened by a shrill bellowing coming from deep in the swamp. He quickly sat up in bed, his ears perked up and his eyes widened as he heard the beastly cry again. The sound kept on coming again and again, penetrating the woods and upsetting the whole neighborhood. Driggers grabbed his shotgun and with a team of hounds in tow made haste to the nearest neighbor, Patrick Kennedy. Upon reaching the Kennedy homestead, Driggers pounded his fist on the door. Get up in there, Pat, there's a beast loose in the woods. Hark, you can hear him. Kennedy, brushing sleep from his eyes, unlatched the door and opened it. Yep, I hear him. That there's one of them old mastodons. We done seen the bones of his kin in the springs. He reached behind the door for his gun and proceeded to stuff his pockets with shotgun shells. Well, say, I'll tell you one thing. He's a big un because his voice is curiouser than I've ever heard before. There's one thing for certain. If and he's out there, my dogs can find him. The two backwoodsmen headed in the direction of the swamp and were soon joined by a posse of neighbors, all bent on hunting down the beastly mastodon. The early morning hunt had mustered just about every settler for miles around, some wearing only their long drawers and boots. They pushed through the palmettos and slogged through the swamps, trying to keep up with their squadron of hounds. The awful sound came again, this time closer than ever, sending the dogs cowering back to their masters. That there old mastodon is just ahead, exclaimed one hunter, and I ain't so certain I want to get any closer. Matthew Driggers, being somewhat more courageous, said, Not me, boys. I'm bound and determined to see what that there old mastodon looks like. Then I'm going to bring him down with this here gun. With Driggers taking the lead, the rest soon followed. Before long, the assortment of characters stumbled out of the woods near the basin of Silver Springs, where they saw a steamboat unloading freight at the dock. This was one of the first paddle-wheel steamboats to make it upriver to Silver Springs Landing. The hunters approached the boat's captain and inquired if he had heard the sound or seen any mastodons along the river that morning. Drigger stepped forward and attempted, to the best of his ability, to imitate the wildly call. The captain laughed, reached up and yanked a rope, sounding the boat's steam whistle. Is that what you boys heard? This is my first trip up the river, and I've been blowing that whistle all morning at every bend. Satisfied that there was no great mastodon running loose in the swamp, the exhausted hunters gathered their panting dogs and returned to their homes. And that, folks, believe it or not, is the story of Florida's last great mastodon hunt. Know of a weird place or have a weird tale to tell? Go to SoFloWeird.com. 
If you want more Strange Florida stories, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit us on Facebook and Instagram. I'm Mia Lorenzo. Thank you for listening to the SoFlow Weird Show. Special thanks goes to our weird announcer, Joe Johnson, Michelle McArdle for promotion and production assistance, and weird contributor Kyle Thayer. This has been a Sideshow Charlie production inspired by Florida's master of the weird, Charlie Carlson. Stay weird, everybody.